has a word for each one of us, that God has a word for you. So as we start this sermon this morning, as we receive God's word, as we put ourselves into that place of receiving, why don't you just say, God has a word for me this morning. So let's just say it together. God has a word for me this morning. All right, let's say it again with conviction. (laughs) All right. God has a word for me this morning. So as I was thinking about um, the message for this weekend for Vandalia campus last night and for this morning, I was thinking about the fact that we just spent the past weekend really soaked in this message about what it is to uh, hear God's voice and then to speak his word to other people. So we call that the prophetic and prophetic ministry. We had this whole weekend of training and just being kind of steeped or soaked in what it is to hear God's voice and then to speak that out to other people. And I began to think this week, as I knew this, this message was coming up, I thought, what is the... In what context do we do that? And what, what does it look like for us to live a life where we're ministering to other people, whether that's in prophetic ministry or maybe it's some other type of ministry? What does it look like for us as a church to take this message of the prophetic ministry and prophetic training? What does it look like for us to take that message and to, to really have that be part of our church life? And I thought about this uh, key scripture, and our kind of our key main verse for today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 3. And we're going to um, read the passage to kind of get us to that verse. But that verse simply says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And so this morning we're going to think about and meditate on faith, hope, and love with the greatest of these being love. So why is it so important to think about faith, hope, and love, especially as we're coming out of a weekend where we've really heard a lot about prophetic ministry and using spiritual gifts? Well, these words that Paul has written in 1 Corinthians about faith, hope, and love abiding, and the greatest of these being love, These words come to us right in the middle of a passage of scripture that talks all about spiritual gifts. So 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, the chapter before and the chapter after these words, are all about what it means for a church to properly use and exercise spiritual gifts. The church in Corinth was a mess. They were believers, but they were doing everything wrong. They weren't serving each other with love. They weren't looking out for each other. They were selfish. They were immature in their faith. They were basically messed up. And Paul has to write this letter of correction to tell them to shape up. And there's a few certain ways he tells them to really shape up if they're going to be a true reflection of Jesus Christ and bring him glory. And one of the ways he tells them to shape up is when it comes to spiritual gifts. If you have a spiritual gift of prophecy, what's the right way to use that gift? If you have the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, what's the right way to use that gift? And so on it goes. And so he frames all of this in the context of faith, hope, and love. And so let's read together these first few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you might be familiar with these verses. Uh, We often hear these spoken or read out in, uh, in weddings. 
because it's talking about love, and it's appropriate to do that. But the very first context in which Paul wrote these words was really to a group of believers in a church. So these words are for a church, not just for a husband and wife, but these words are for a church as well. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So let's just soak in this passage for a moment. And what's Paul talking about here? There's a few things that really stand out from this passage. So like I said, Paul is talking about this in the context of a group of Christians together in a church so that they could love each other, that they could serve each other, so that they would know the best way to use their spiritual gifts. Believing each one of us has a spiritual gift, how should we live our lives? How should we live our lives towards one another in a way of love? So it's important Paul tells us in these words that Loving each other, having a deep love for each other is at the heart of what it is to be a church, to be a group of believers gathered together. And as we live our lives, we express the love of God to each other. If that's the case, then it's also really important that love and understanding love is at the heart of our own individual lives. Because if each of us has a revelation of what it is to be loved and to know how to love other people, then that's where the fullest expression of love can be seen in our church. Love has these amazing qualities. In the middle of this passage, we have that love is patient, kind, does not envy, boasts, it's not our, and there's all of these amazing qualities that love has. And I love in verse 7 where love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What a strength there is to love. What strength it has to unite us together. We also see that there is a process of maturity in this passage. Did you pick up where Paul talks about the fact that at one point he was a child, but then he becomes a man? And he's not talking about physically growing up. He's talking about his spiritual walk, his relationship with God. And what's amazing is in that process of maturity that there are some things that we know for a season, but then we move into another season where we know more clearly, where we know more fully. 
Now, what is Paul talking about specifically here? He's talking about when we die and we go into the presence of Jesus, when all things are finally put right and we see the final consummation of everything that Jesus has won for us on the cross, when we're finally in the presence of God face to face, some things will cease. Some things will cease. And we see what those things are. Prophecies will pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will pass away. Because we will all have direct and full access to God. We won't need each other to help understand and see God more clearly. But until that time, we need each other. We need each other to use our gifts in love to help us see God the Father and to glorify Christ together. So there are things that will pass away. Things that even in this life we're going to hold really dear that relationship, that ability to be able to use our spiritual gifts. And those gifts may cease and pass away, but there are things that will endure forever. And Paul tells us what those things are. Faith, hope, and love will endure forever. We will always love God. We will always have our hope placed in Him. We'll always have faith in God, no matter if it's in this world or the world to come. We will always have those things they will abide. So let's look at faith, hope, and love a little bit more. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at love because it is the greatest of these three. In faith, we are in Hebrews 11. We read about faith, and you may have um, you may have some familiarity with that passage in Hebrews 11. It's kind of like the Hall of Fame of faith, and it's talking about these great uh, believers who have gone before us, who've expressed great faith, who've demonstrated great faith in God. Well, in Hebrews 11, verse 1, we read that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith in God is the foundational aspect of our lives as Christians. You know, we understand that um, faith is really, really essential for us coming into relationship with God. And there's two aspects of faith that I want to mention this morning. So as, as Christians, we call ourselves believers, people who have put belief, put faith in God. And there's two parts to this. Number one, when we put faith in God, we're putting faith in Him, we're putting faith in Christ, and we're putting faith in the fact that when we read our scriptures, that we believe that Jesus is who He said He is. So when we put faith in Jesus, we put faith in Him as He's revealed to us by God the Father, and especially through scripture. When we believe, when we put our faith in Christ, we're saying certain things about him. By faith, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world who God sent from heaven. That Jesus came and lived a perfect and sinless life. That he died in our place. That he was raised to life by God on, on the third day. And now that he sits at the right hand of God in heaven and he makes intercession for us. That is what we put our faith in. And by faith, we then know that we can have assurance of salvation, that when we die, that we will go into the presence of God, that there will be fullness of joy and life in His presence forevermore. And that is our confident assurance. 
because we put our faith in Christ, there's another reality that hits in to our lives, and that is because we put our faith solely in Christ, we no longer put our faith solely in ourselves. And that's the other side of this faith struggle, journey, life that we're on because we're often so tempted to take that faith that we've put in Christ and to take a little bit of it back and put it on ourselves. And I think this is one of the fundamental struggles of being a Christian where on the one hand we proclaim full assurance, full faith in Christ and yet it's so easy to say, you know, I still kind of trust myself because I, you know, fill in the blank, have this awesome job, I earn enough money, I, you know, work out and eat right, I have a great spouse, great family. I mean, you can kind of go down the list and you can feel pretty good about yourself pretty quickly. You can normally find some way to make yourself feel pretty good based on who you are. And the struggle is to not simply trust in your own strength, your own ability, your own income, your own fill-in-the-blank, and instead to fully put faith in Christ. And that's a struggle. That's a struggle for all of us to fully surrender and put faith in Christ. And that's why when we come together as a church, we need to remind ourselves and encourage each other to put our faith fully in Christ. When we worship together to say, Jesus, I do surrender to you again. I do fully put my faith in you again because all the stuff that happened in the last week would rather tell me to put my faith in myself rather than you. Our culture really rewards this putting your faith in yourself story, right? Who do we celebrate in our culture? The people who had it really rough and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and made it to the greatest and highest position. They start their own business. They make it into high positions of leadership in government. You know, fill in the blank. We know what these stories look like. And our culture rewards that. And yet, as a church, we say that doesn't really matter at all. I may get to great positions of influence. I may make a lot of money. I may, whatever is important to you. But ultimately, our faith is in Christ. Hope in the Bible is not simply this wish. Like, I personally hope that there's not a lot of snow this winter. You may be the opposite. But when I say that I hope it doesn't snow a lot, I have no control over that, and I also have no confidence in saying those words. (laughs) Hope in the Bible is not like that. Hope in the Bible is a confident expression where we can say, because of God's enduring faithfulness, that we have a full expectation. So hope is different. It's this thing that's really solid. Like when you say, I hope it doesn't snow, that has about as much weight as a piece of paper, right? It's got nothing to it, but hope in Scripture is heavy and weighty. Hope is this confident expectation that's rooted, not in us, but in the enduring faithfulness of God. Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he basically says, before you were in relationship with God, you were without hope. You were without hope. And, and people don't know that they're without hope because they, they, they manufacture hope 
in their lives, right? This artificial hope, like what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to this thing happening, this vacation, this promotion, this next job. I'm looking forward to all these things. But we have a deeper and more enduring hope that ultimately says no matter what happens, we have a confident expectation in God. And ultimately, this sees its fullest expression when we think about what happens to us when we die. Because often people don't think about that and they just they put that out of their minds. But for us, we have a confident hope. Because we've placed our faith in Christ, we have this confident expectation that no matter what happens to us in this life, everything will be fine because we're in relationship with Christ. Paul talks about um, hope as a helmet of salvation. That hope is this really powerful thing and it should be present in our lives. Okay, finally, love. God demonstrates his love to us in lots of different ways. And some of these ways are really huge and some of these are really can be quite small. Sometimes love comes to us in a small way, like a kind word from a friend, or maybe you come into church and you're feeling kind of low and somebody gives you a hug, and in that moment you know that God loves you. It's just a small thing, right? But it, it matters to us. It might be that you're in prayer and you hear a word from God and you know, that's, that's for me. God knows exactly where I am and what's going on. That's an expression of his love. Sometimes you open up the Bible and you read a passage of Scripture and it's almost as if that passage was written just for you and you're the only person in history that God had in mind (laughs) when he had those words written, right? It's so real. And those times we're in God's presence and we sense his love are so incredible. But sometimes life has a way of kind of eroding that that love, that, that sense of knowing that God loves us. And sometimes it can be hard for us to sustain you know, our love relationship with God. You know, I think that Paul says that love is the greatest of the three because if you can maintain and sustain your love relationship with God, then faith and, and hope have a way of sustaining themselves. You know, if you can really sustain a relationship of love with God, then the rest falls into place because it's hard to put your faith and hope in something that you are afraid of or you don't love. And I think that being able to maintain and sustain and nurture the relationship of love is so important for us and it's so important for our church because it really is at the root of our relationship with God. And as we strengthen that love relationship, the rest of our lives can be strengthened. You know, sometimes life wants to wear us down in terms of our relationship with God. You know, hopes and dreams that we had, things that go unfulfilled. There's a lot of things that can come in. You know, the world will say, why put your faith in Jesus? That's crazy. Put your trust in, you know, something else. And yet, we know that that we should really maintain and sustain our love relationship with God. You know, there's other times... When it's not the world that kind of challenges uh, our thinking about does God love us, where it's more like in our own lives and our own hearts. You know, sometimes we do things, we say things, we think things. Sometimes there's things we should have done that we didn't. And we feel so ashamed, we feel so guilty, we feel like we want to keep God at a distance. Where in that moment it's like we don't even really feel that we deserve God's love. 
We don't necessarily want it in that moment. Where it feels more safe for us to sit by ourselves and for God's love to stay at a distance. And yet God is so incredibly loving that when we do cry out to him, when we do call out to him, he comes to us with love. And there are times in your life that you can probably remember where you were trying to keep God at bay, and yet his love came and found you. (laughs) If you want to learn more and receive more of the love of God, One of the best people to learn from is the Apostle John. John had such a deep revelation of the love of God. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. Okay, he wrote that himself, but I'm sure it was true. But John really understood this love relationship with God. And there's some, some really great words that he's written at the end of the New Testament. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. There are some passages that will say, you know, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. Lavished is kind of a rich word. We don't use it too much. In 1 John chapter 4, this is a chapter later, starting at verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So we see that God is love. From these words, we see that God is love. And because God is love, we can live our lives free from fear. Where God's love is making us perfect. And from these words, we can see that when we encounter God, we encounter love. When you encounter God, you encounter love. You might say, isn't it strange to spend so much time talking just about God's love? Like, aren't there other parts to God that are really important? Like, Isn't God holy and righteous? Doesn't God have this angry side to him that brings judgment? Shouldn't we we really talk about that as well as talk about love? Well, it's true that there are those elements to God that we need to keep in mind. That God is a judge, that he will judge the living and the dead, that every word, and there's, there's that side to God that he will judge. It's true that he is holy, that he is terrifying in the splendor and awesomeness of his glory. And yet, these words that we've just read together, they don't say that God is anger, or God is wrath. God is love. And it's in his love that he judges sin. It's in his love that he judges 
all that is wrong in our lives. You know, it's not loving to see someone doing something destructive and just let them do it. If you see someone who's headed in a wrong direction, the loving thing is to step in, to say something, to do something. And God loves us so much that he didn't let us stay on the path to destruction. That path that was all about us and all about our own way. Instead, he stepped in through Christ. And so, though we keep in mind that God is a judge and that he especially will judge sin and evil, he is love. And you know, God is going to finally and fully account for sin and death and hell. There'll come a day where the, the power of sin and of death will be totally gone. You know, we kind of see that in part, but we're going to see it fully when God sets all things right. And after that, God's love will remain. His wrath will be poured out fully. His judgment will have been exercised. And there will be no more need for those things, but his love will remain. One final scripture to point you to here as we think about this. In Romans, Paul writes a really amazing verse. The church in Rome, some of the people in the church in Rome were thinking, you know, if God's grace is so incredible, if his love and his mercy is so great, then I'm going to do whatever I want. I can sin as much as I like because God's grace is so amazing. And they thought, you know, if I do more sin, then God will have to pour out more grace to deal with the increasing levels of sin. And so they thought, isn't it good that there's more grace? And Paul challenges them and says, no, you have, you have it totally backwards. And he writes these amazing words that, that really are the main foundation for how we understand what it is to be made righteous by faith. And in the midst of this passage... He talks about this whole idea of how we think about God and how we think about ourselves and how we're drawn to God through and as we think about his grace. And in Romans 2.4, Paul says that it's actually the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness and the mercy of God that leads us to repentance. I don't know if you've, you know, you may have heard and grown up in a church where it was the fear and the awe and the majesty of God that was to draw us into repentance. It's hard to be drawn towards something that you're terrified of. It's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. Now, there are times when his majesty can overwhelm us, and there is that side to him. But Paul, when he's making the case of how are we drawn into relationship with God, chooses in this moment to highlight the kindness of God. So how can we live our lives in a way where we're really nurturing and sustaining the love of God? How can we do this, not just for ourselves, but for each other as a church? Because remember, this is all in the context of living in community as a church and, and, and understanding how faith, hope, and love work in our lives so that we can share it with other people. Well, I want to share three things with you that, as I kind of head towards the finish line here in terms of how we can nurture and sustain love in our lives especially. Um, the first one is to kind of borrow this um, way of thinking from the Old Testament. So there's this uh, way of thinking in the Old Testament that really can be helpful to us. 
There was key points in the Old Testament story where things were going really terribly wrong and things didn't seem to be happening uh, according to what the people thought should be happening. Especially that you know God wasn't stepping in in time or they were encouraged to maybe through life circumstances doubt the greatness and the love of God. So one of the key times is in Exodus. And so God in Genesis has given all these amazing promises to Abraham about how he'll have all these descendants and there'll be this nation that comes from him. And yet by the start of Exodus, like the first chapter and two, all of these promises seem to be falling apart. And the people who have descended from Abraham's line are being crushed by the Egyptians and they're in slavery. They're not even in the land they're supposed to be. There's all of these promises are going wrong and it looks as though everything is headed in the wrong direction. In that moment, they were not tempted to think that God was loving towards them. And yet, there's this, there's this trajectory of the first two chapters of Exodus where the only direction this story is headed is, is everything is going badly. And we get to the very bottom of the second chapter of Exodus, and there's a, there's a couple of verses that turn the whole story of Exodus around. And those verses are that God remembered his promise to Abraham. The idea of remembering is huge in the Bible. When the times come in your life, when you are discouraged, where you are not sure if God loves you, the idea of remembering is really important. And it's not like, oh, I need to remember to get the milk on the way home. It's not like that. Remembering is where you steep yourself in the reality of what God has said before what he has done before, where you meditate on it and it becomes part of you turning your mindset around. There are so many times where God remembers his people, where God remembers his people. And it's this sense of not just, oh, I remember they exist. It's, I remember them, I see exactly where they are. And I remember all of the words and promises that have been spoken for them up to this point. And I know that I'm faithful And I'm going to step in. Right after God remembers Israel, the very, very next passage of Scripture in Exodus is the birth of Moses. And with Moses, we see the story start to turn around. God remembers Israel, and then God enacts a plan to redeem. And that cycle happens over and over and over in the Bible. Or God remembers his people, or he remembers an individual, and he's faithful to that person, and he demonstrates and shows his love towards them. The other part of that is there's lots of times in the Old Testament where the people remember what God has done. So it's not just that God remembers his people, it's that God's people then, in turn, remember what God has done, and the two work together. In the book of Psalms, you see lots and lots of times whenever the people use their songs to remember what God has done. Lots and lots of the Psalms, the worship songs in the Old Testament, remember specific events that happened. And they used these songs and the reminder of these events to say to each other, see, God does love us. God is faithful. If you want a really good example of that, Psalm 136 talks about the enduring goodness of God. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
Give thanks to the God of gods, his steadfast love endures forever. This is the psalm where they say something and then they have the refrain, his love endures forever, his love endures forever, his love endures forever, his love endures forever. And it goes on and on and on. And the people of Israel would remember what God had done just as God remembered his people. So when you are tempted to, um, to doubt in God's love and faithfulness, remember what he has done. In scripture, how he has remembered his people, how he has been faithful. And then remember the times in your life or someone you know where God stepped in and demonstrated his love in a very real way. The second thing to know as we think about having and you know nurturing and sustaining love for God in our lives is that God restores all things. That God restores all things. Even even though it seems like they cannot be restored, God does ultimately restore all things. Um, Adam and Eve really messed up in the Bible. They had it no nobody had it better than they did, and nobody did more to make things wrong than they did, right? They really messed up. And yet even when they were face to face with God in their sinful state, God showed love to them. When they were ashamed because of their nakedness, when they were fearful and, and wanted to stay away from God, God came to them and made clothes to cover their shame. God made sure that they were provided for even as they were out of the Garden of Eden. Time after time, God restores. Time after time, God puts things right. And even in the Old Testament, we see lots and lots of times where God brings restoration and God shows his loving side. We're sometimes tempted to think that the God of the Old Testament is the mean and uh, nasty God who you know, has it out for people, but in the New Testament, God is love. And that couldn't be further from the truth. There's so much of God's love that is poured out in the Old Testament as God restores and brings restoration in people's lives. Um, there's lots of examples of how God demonstrates and shows his love. But one example is in the life of Moses, where Moses has messed up, and you know when God gave Moses his great life commission, Moses tried to say, no, thank you, I don't want to do that, send my brother. You know, like There's lots of things where Moses maybe wasn't the most stellar example, and yet God used Moses in an amazing way. And Moses' relationship with God was so close, that Moses would see God face to face. His face would, would shine with the glory of God. And God was so loving towards Moses. The same Moses who wrote the law and all those stipulations about what's clean and unclean. God showed so much love to Moses. There's a time when the glory of God passes by Moses. That God lets him see part of his glory and what was the thing that stood out to Moses as the glory of God went past? It was that the Lord was loving and gracious and kind. There's a big build-up to this incident in, in the book of Exodus where Moses and God are talking back and forth. And Moses is like, I want to see your glory. And God said, okay, I'll let you see it. That God really is gonna, God's really going to reveal who he is to Moses. He's going to really, like this, it doesn't get any more personal than this, that God is really going to show, it's not going to be God hidden behind some kind of veil or God in symbol, I mean, God in imagery. This is really going to be it. And as God passes by Moses, 
the revelation he gets is that God is loving, that God is kind, that God is compassionate. In the New Testament, we see the example of Peter, where Peter denies Christ three times. Peter goes from, you know, being the one who confesses. He's, Peter's the one who gets it, right? That you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And he goes from there to denying that he ever met Jesus. And yet we see that Jesus, because of his love, turns around and restores Peter. So God is the one who restores all things. So, number one, to remember. To remember God. To celebrate what he has done. And to know that God remembers us. The second thing is to know that God restores all things. And that even though your circumstances don't seem to, uh, to line up with that, that God is loving and God is a God who restores. That we are in this new creation relationship with God. And finally, when we're wanting to nurture and sustain this love relationship with God, we simply have to ask Him to reveal His love to us. It seems really obvious, but we probably don't stop and ask God to reveal his love to us enough, right? You get busy with life and you come into church and we sing about God's love. You're like, oh yeah, God does love me. I should ask for it. And we want to be the type of church that encourages you to ask for God's love, to ask for that, to go deeper. There are things that we understand in our minds and there are things that our hearts receive. There's the head knowledge and the heart revelation. We need both. So this morning has been more focused on the head knowledge part to remind you that God loves you. But for each of us, as we walk out of church today, a big part of applying this is just asking God to reveal it to us in our hearts as well as in our minds. And so this morning, as we close, let's just spend a couple of moments and let's just ask for God to come and to fill us up with his love. It's okay to do that. It's good to do that. It's good to sustain this love for God in our lives so that we can then in turn show his love to other people. So let's pray together. Father, we rejoice that you are love. That when we encounter you, we encounter love. And God, we ask that you would come and show your love to us once more. For some of us, it's kind of an unfamiliar thing to ask that you would come and reveal your love. But God, where your love comes in, there is no fear. It's a good thing to come to you, O Lord, and ask that you would show your love to us. And God, it's going to be something that's personal for each one of us. But Father, would you come and just pour out your love into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds. Show us, oh Lord, how much you love us. And how much we can walk in the confidence that you are a redeemer, that you remember us. Thank you, Father, for your great love. Let it continue to pour into our hearts and minds, we pray.
In your name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Thanks. All right. How many people are feeling love this morning? Good. Uh, yeah, as Graham was, was sharing that, I just I, I thought of a word that